I was holding my place in the in the Bible here just so carefully throughout the song with my finger and all that kind of stuff, and then when I got right there, I lost it. So, <laughs> not sure what happened to it. All right, well, turn with me to Revelation chapter eighteen tonight. Revelation chapter eighteen. Let's pray, Father. We are grateful that we can sing uh, those truths about your love for us, and Lord, a love that is undeserved. You are just a gracious, loving, merciful, good God. You are good, and you do good, as the psalmist said. So thank you for loving us the way you do. Help us tonight as we study your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I studied for tonight, I I couldn't help but think about the, the migration in my own mind that's happened through the decades when it comes to world history. When I was young and in early years of school, uh, I did not care so much for learning anything about world history. It wasn't interesting to me, but as I matured eventually, uh, I did become more interested in it. So I have done more reading on that topic or reading things related to world history more in the last uh, couple of decades or so. I definitely don't know everything about world history. I'm not an expert. I don't know everything that I would like to know. I have a, a, a general knowledge of at least this, that there have been a, a lot of nations along the way, a lot of kingdoms, a lot of empires that have existed, some that still do, some have come and gone, lots of empires and kingdoms that have been built uh, and nations ruled by people who are humanistic in their thinking, humanistic. Humanistic thinking is that which elevates the significance of human opinion. It elevates human philosophy, human achievement. It's ultimately prideful. It's an arrogant way of thinking. And this spirit of humanism has a long history, back to the beginning of human history, but a a significant example of uh, early humanistic thinking in Scripture is the account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. So did I tell you to turn to Revelation 18? I meant to say Genesis chapter 11. Turn there first. Now you can hold your finger in Revelation 18, and maybe you'll do a lot better job of that than I did walking up here, But uh, since I lost my place. But Genesis 11, I, I think we ought to spend just a little bit of time reviewing uh, the account of the Tower of Babel because it does relate to what we're looking at and studying in the book of Revelation. In Genesis 11, 1 to 9, this is the account of people who in rebellion against God's authority decided to build a city called Babel, which came to be called Babylon also, and a tower in that city of Babylon or Babel. And the thinking that led to the building of that city and the building of that tower is what still characterizes people today, humanistic thinking. It is also the thinking that will characterize the lost world uh, during the tribulation period and most pronounced uh, during the great tribulation. So let's briefly look at Babel or Babylon, the beginning of all of that, a city that became the prototype of all people and all empires that have ever raised themselves up in pride against God. In fact, 
uh, later Old Testament writers like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel used the name Babylon, uh, which comes from Babel, Babylon as a symbol for godless society. It's a metaphor for godless society. So in Genesis 11, I don't have time to go into all the detail, but just look at verse 4. They said, the people said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. So it's a city, but it's a city that would include a tower, sort of an early attempt at building a a skyscraper of sorts, uh, because it says there that the top would uh, be in the heavens. In other words, as a way of saying it would be very high, high up in the sky. Now, from a human viewpoint, that's a very aggressive undertaking, and we wouldn't say that it's sinful in and of itself to build a tower, even a tall tower. But there's obviously more going on there. There was more going on there. This tower was an expression of a worldview. Heaven is the abode of God, so that represents God. Therefore, this ancient tower was an effort to be uh, on an equal level with God, to bring down God, as it were, uh, or you could put it this way, uh, an effort to domesticate, domesticate God. The people were ultimately saying that they did not need to be accountable to him. They only needed to be accountable to themselves. That's an element of humanistic thinking. The next statement in verse 4 clearly exposes their sinful thinking. Verse 4 says, and let us make for ourselves a name. That equates to uh, fame, uh, renown, a desire for fame, a desire for renown that would supposedly then give them security. So this was man's attempt on his own, separate from God, to both promote himself and provide security for himself. To put it more bluntly, this was man's uh, attempt to compete with God, even to usurp God's prerogatives and God's rights. An arrogant rebellion against God, insurrection, and it's disclosed even more in verse 4. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Why do they, did they say that? Well, because go back to Genesis 1. Verse 28, for a moment in your mind, God commanded early on that humans would fill the earth. God blessed them, it says in Genesis 1, 28, first couple, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. That was repeated later on to Noah and his sons in Genesis 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that's God's command. So back to Genesis 11, these people are saying, we don't, we don't want to be scattered over the whole earth. doesn't matter what God has said. So in their insecurity and not trusting God, they just did not want to obey God. So the bottom line problem was that this was an attempt by people to abolish the purposes of God in favor of their own purposes, their own will. It's the sin of ignoring God and just doing what they wanted to do. That's a worldview. And this arrogant undertaking was just the forerunner then of many, many further attempts in world history, attempts by mankind to ignore God or usurp God's prerogatives. Still in Genesis 11, God was not going to tolerate their arrogance. Look at verse 6 and 7. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. 
And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us, triune God, let us go down and therefore confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. When it says go down, that's, a, that's an expression that means judgment, to go down in judgment. You find a very similar remark in, in, in reference to Sodom in, later on in Genesis 18, verse 21. In Genesis 18, 21, God says, I will go down now and see if they've done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me. In both passages, there is this this cry of rebellion that goes to God, and the Lord knew what was going on in both situations at Babel and at Sodom, and judgment was therefore necessary both times. And here in Genesis 11, the judgment carried out was a confusion of their, not so much their speaking, it was a confusion of their understanding. They were speaking the same, but now they were not understanding one another. And that eventually led to the dispersion, verse 8. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city, at least for a while, temporarily. So that's the account of the tower built at Babel, the city of Babel, which came to be known as Babylon. And the city, the, the thinking that goes along with that city, and the city itself represents then a worldview. It's a symbol of a worldview. And as well, it's a symbol of divine judgment on the pride of human beings, the foolishness of human beings who think they can ignore God, who think they can oppose, oppose their creator. It's a godlessness, a worldview that is godlessness that must attract the judgment of Almighty God, God going down to deal with it in judgment. And this reality that, that that's a picture of comes to its final expression in the book of Revelation. Now, just briefly, we're going to put some slides up uh, to kind of show you where we are once again in our, our whole study of uh, Revelation. There, there's the slide that we showed you a long time ago that's the overall picture of the book. You know, chapter 1 uh, is, was the vision of Christ, that glorious vision of Christ. And, and, you know, the, uh, John was told to write what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. That's an outline for the whole book. So chapter one is what you've seen. Uh, then it gets to part two, uh, what is now, and that was the letters to all the churches, churches that represent, uh, that existed at that time, real churches and churches that represent churches throughout history. And then the longest part, chapter, verses 4 to 22, the future, what will take place later. So we're in that part, have been for a while, part 3, the future, chapters 4 through 22. Now you um, can break that down a little bit, which I know you memorized all these slides when I gave them to you, you know, months ago. Uh, but just to see him again, that third part, what will take place later, it's, it's been broken down. We looked at chapters 4 and 5, this, this section of, of adoration of Jesus glorified in heaven. And then uh, uh, chapters 6 through 18, which is where we are right now. Uh, the tribulation, judgment coming down on earth. And so what's coming then still in our study, verse chapter 19, is the second coming of Christ from heaven to earth. 
And then uh, chapter 20 gets into the millennial kingdom, this discussion of that, verses 1 to 10, heaven on earth, and then 11 through 15 of chapter 20, the great white throne judgment, and then finally the eternal state, the new heaven and earth. So you can see where we are in part three of the book, the longest section, we're in that second little bullet point, uh, the tribulation, judgment on earth, and we're in our last chapter uh, dealing with that. And so you can break um, that down a little more. The tribulation, those law, all those chapters, 6 through 18, we saw judgment, phase one of judgment. There's three phases of judgment. You had the, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, three phases. And after each phase of judgment, there's been a little parentheses of some sort, some longer than others, uh, 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 some thought about um, some explanation, sometimes going back and get, filling in information. And then we did phase two, some more judgment, chapters 8 and 9. But then in those verses, uh, 10 to 15 there, you had another parenthesis. Uh, I mean, chapters, you had another parenthesis. And then we finally got to phase three of the judgment, which was chapter 16, but then there was a parenthesis again. Some filler, explanation, uh, more of what's going on. So sometimes it's, it's not in chronological order because you're getting filler, you're getting backstory and so on and so forth. And so you can see that's more specifically where we are last time and this time. We're in that third parenthesis, chapter 17 and 18, before we finally go on now uh, to chapter 19, the, the glorious return of Christ in power. So uh, anyway, you can turn that off now. Back to our study of chapter 18 of Revelation. <clears throat> All that that began in, in the original Babylon, and it's been a, uh, you know, going on throughout history, world history, come to its final expression in the book of Revelation. In John's vision of the future, we see Babylon again, an actual city again in the future that will be the headquarters of Antichrist, but also Babylon is used to represent the whole system, a system representing rebellion against God's authority. And the city and the system both will finally be judged and destroyed. This judgment is occurring during the tribulation, especially now during the second half of the tribulation. But in throughout all the tribulation, there is judgment raining down that's increasing in its severity. First, it was the seal judgments, as I said, then the trumpet judgments, and then finally the bowl judgments. And we're in that last, the seventh bowl judgment. These judgments are going to be worldwide in scope, which is one of the several reasons we know they haven't already happened at some point in world history. People have tried to, to interpret Revelation that way, that it's just talking about things that have happened in the past, like the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But th this is not a localized kind of judgment. It's worldwide. But they will focus particularly on the empire set up and ruled over by Antichrist, the empire called Babylon. And that empire will involve both a, a religious aspect and a commercial aspect. Basically, and not purely so, but last time in chapter 17, talking about the judgment of Babylon, it was the, the, the religious Babylon. Well, tonight in chapter 18 is judgment on commercial Babylon. At the midpoint of the tribulation, Antichrist will even destroy its own false Babylonian religious system, which Kevin pointed out to us in chapter 17. Look back at chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. 
Interesting statement, chapter 17, 16, 17. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate, the, the false religion, make it desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn up her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose. All that is just saying that there's going to be religion going on the worship of the Antichrist, but God is going to even cause them to implode upon themselves and there's going to be self-destruction as far as the religious aspect of all that. What will be left is only the worship of Antichrist. So the Babylon that's in view in chapter 18 is the same city at some level, the same system, but looking at it more from not Antichrist's religious system, the world system, but the commercial system, the worldwide commercial empire that's going to exist in the future. Antichrist, that worldwide commercial empire which will rule the world during the last half of the tribulation, three and a half years. The Antichrist at that time is going to build and he'll have the power to do it. Uh, the greatest commercial empire the world has ever known. Even in the midst of all the devastating judgments due to his great power, he is going to orchestrate the construction of commercial Babylon, a worldwide wealthy system. So just keep that in line, mind. Babylon is an actual city, his headquarters, but its influence will be worldwide in a system. Just so you know, there were several Old Testament prophecies that uh, predicted the Babylon's future destruction and perpetual desolation. Let me just read a few of those. Isaiah 13, verse 19. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew through Sodom and Gomorrah. Another prophecy, Isaiah 14, verse 22. I will cut off from Babylon name and survivors, offspring and posterity, declares the Lord. One more, Jeremiah 51, verse 37. Babylon will become a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, uh, an object of horror and hissing without inhabitants. Uh, different ways to talk about this system being judged in the future. There have been taste of this judgment all along the way in world history. But this final worldwide destruction of a worldwide Babylon, commercial Babylon and religious Babylon, is still to come which is what we're looking at, chapter 17 and 18. Just remember something else that we've seen along the way in our study of the book of Revelation. By this point, where we're studying now, toward the end of the tribulation, Babylon will have received plenty of warnings of doom that's coming. In the past, we, we looked at the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that will proclaim the gospel, the two witnesses proclaiming the gospel, Redeemed people proclaiming the gospel, even an angel flying in the heavens proclaiming gospel truth, the message to the world of the gospel, and that message includes the truth that God is going to judge those who do not repent. So by this point, Babylon has heard that, repeated warnings. In addition, look back at chapter 14, verse 8. Earlier in the tribulation, an angel specifically warned of Babylon's impending doom, Revelation 14.8. And another angel, a second one, follows saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. 
The angel spoke just the way it's worded. It spoke of Babylon's future falls that was still coming even at that time as if it's already happened. It's just a way of emphasizing that it's a done deal. The certainty of its doom, it's going to happen. And despite the repeated warnings all over the world, people all over the world are going to refuse to repent. And that's been said more than once during the tribulation study here. Revelation chapter 9 verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. Revelation 16, verse 9 and 11, men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power of these plagues and they did not repent. Verse 11, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent. So just keep that in mind. Repeated warnings, repeated proclamation of the gospel all along the way during, during the time of all these judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpets, the bold judgments, people will not repent. And therefore, God is going to go down again. God's final judgment will therefore fall on Babylon. And with the destruction of that last greatest ever, as far as size and magnitude, human slash satanic empire, that then sets the stage for chapter 19, the triumphant return of Jesus Christ. So it's these two chapters, 17 and 18, that present God's ultimate victory over and destruction of this future Babylon, a final destruction that's in the seventh of the seven bold judgments. Now, in tonight, chapter 18, uh, you can look at chapter 18 this way. There are three speakers in this chapter uh, depicting this future judgment again. There's speaker number one. That's verses one to three, and it's an angel. So this is the first angelic Uh, pronouncement here, speaker number one, verses one to three. Then speaker number two, it just says a voice from heaven, and that's a longer section, verses four to 20. And then in the last few verses, verses 21 to 24, there's a, a third speaker, which is the second angelic pronouncement. Now tonight, uh, we're going to basically just go as far as we can. Okay. (laughs) I, I don't know where we'll end. I'm watching the clock. And I'll borrow a a line from John MacArthur that I've heard he use many times in the past, that his sermons are like sausage. You can cut them off anywhere and just pick back up, you know, the same place next time. So that's what we'll do. We'll cut this sausage off somewhere tonight when it's time. And I don't know exactly what verse we'll be on. If, If things go well and I can talk fast enough, we'll get through verse eight. Okay, that's my prophecy my hopeful prophecy, verse 8. And then we'll do the entire rest of the chapter in our next study together when we're together. So the, the, the first eight verses are just very, very concentrated. All right, so speaker number one, verses one to three. This is the first angelic pronouncement. An angel enters the picture here to describe and to, to dramatize the downfall of Babylon, but now, more specifically, the commercial aspect of Babylon. The religious aspect is going to be destroyed, too. That's more of what chapter 17 was looking at, but now the commercial aspect of the system. Verse 1, after these things, I saw another angel. That little phrase occurs often in Revelation, after these things. It it always introduces a new set of circumstances. So here, it indicates what came next in the sequence of the visions John was receiving. And the fact that this is another angel means it was an angel 
uh, distinct from the one in chapter 17, verse 1. That was an angel uh, that spoke, but this is another angel, and yet the word another means another of the same kind. So it's a different angel, but a similar angel is going to announce Babylon's doom. It says that he came down from heaven with great authority. He, he left God's presence, that's where he was, and he has this delegated authority to act on God's behalf, he will have, but it's not the authority to actually bring about the judgment. This angel is not administering the judgment. Instead, the word authority actually is referring to the strength of his voice, how loud he could speak. That was his authority, his loud voice. He had the ability, will have the ability, I keep putting it in past tense because the scripture looks at it that way because it's a done deal from God's viewpoint, even though it's in the future. Uh, This angel will have the ability of making himself heard because of this strong voice, a voice with great authority, and that's going to get Babylon's attention. In fact, he'll definitely get Babylon's attention because his arrival on the scene is quite dramatic. Verse 1, and the earth was illumined with his glory. Now, think about that. This, this angel comes from heaven, will come from heaven, and, and it's going to reflecting. This angel is bringing the glory of heaven in, in just in what he reflects. And as a result, there's going to be this broad stretch of light across the world, the earth, which fits the state of the earth that's going to be in darkness because Revelation chapter 16, verse 10, that was one of the bold judgments, Revelation 16, 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened. So a lot of these bold judgments are happening, happening quickly, but there's darkness here, but this extraordinary angel with this resplendent glory sort of lights up the earth with this loud voice, and the sight is no doubt going to be awe-inspiring and shocking and terrifying to the people on the earth. And the message he is going to deliver is going to be clear, verse 2. And he cried out. Again, John's seeing it as if it's already done, even though it was future. And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The strength of the angel's voice makes it impossible will make it impossible for anyone to ignore what he has to say. Everyone's going to hear him. Everyone's going to see him. And what he cries out is going to add to the dread and the shock that's already been caused by his voice and appearance. And it's a message of calamity for Antichrist, the leader, and all of his followers, his entire kingdom. Babylon the Great has fallen. Now, that matches the words that I read to you in in chapter 14, verse 8, of the angel saying, fallen, fallen. Is Babylon the great. So the judgment predicted in chapter 14, verse 8, is now going to be carried out. And this is the picture of complete and definite destruction and ruin. It is so certain, again, that the tense of the verb expresses it like it's a done deal from God's perspective. And this future ruin and destruction is going to be sudden and severe. In fact, that was discussed in the Old Testament as well. Listen to Isaiah 47, verse 11. Evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away, and disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone, and destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. Now, all the way through world history, there have been examples of God's judgment on Babylon, either the city itself or 
in various versions of the city that were recreated along the way in world history. If you go back far enough, it didn't end with the destruction of, the, of Babel and the tower and the confusion of ha- that happened there. Um, I should say, the confusion. Uh, there have been versions of, on the old side of Babylon, the Babylon of old, there have been uh, versions of, uh, of one city or, or another there over and over through the century until centuries until just recent times. But it's going to be there again in the future, some location, Babylon. And all on the way in world history, there have been judgments all along the way of Babylon. But this devastation of Babylon, and it's the surrounding region and the system that goes with it, is, is not going to be a, a, a slow decay like a lot of God, God's judgments have been on Babylon through, church, through world history. It's sudden. Sudden. Now, just so you'll know, in history, the most famous judgment on Babylon of old, ancient Babylon, was in 539 B.C. And that judgment's referred to in Isaiah 21, verse 9. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. But even that, 539, as important as that was in, in history, was not the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. What will happen in the future Babylon to the future Babylon is the ultimate fulfillment. This judgment pronounced on the future worldwide Babylon will be greater. It'll be more far-reaching, and it'll be sudden and devastating. Now, more specifically, why will this future Babylon be under such judgment and such destruction? In general, it's because of the humanistic thinking, the worldview that it represents, and the rebellion against God and the usurping of God. But Scripture here tells us even more specific information. Here's one of the causes given for Babylon's destruction in verse 2. Excuse me, yeah, verse 2. Here's one of the causes. It's going to be a stronghold of demons. Verse 2. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit. Just so you'll know, unclean spirit and demons are synonyms, different ways of saying the same thing, demonic beings. So here's one of the causes given for Babylon's destruction. Babylon, the future Babylon, is going to be a a massive stronghold of demons. Now, it should not be shocking to us. We've already been notified in Revelation of demonic activity that increases during the tribulation. I'll just remind you. Revelation chapter 9, we've already seen that there's going to be demons released from the uh, abyss at the sounding of the fifth trumpet. Listen to this, Revelation 9 verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Verse 3, then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. These are demons. And power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. Verse 11 says, and they have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. These are demonic beings that in the sounding of the fifth trumpet are going to be released from the abyss. They're there. And it was in the vicinity of this Babylon that 200 million formerly bound demons, we're told, are going to be released at the sounding of the sixth trumpet. Look at Revelation 9, verses 13 through 16. 
Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released, so they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen that they're leading, the demons, was 200 million. So just think about that. All those demons released at the sounding of the fifth trumpet. All the demons released at the sounding of the sixth trumpet. Millions and millions, hundreds of millions. All of these, along with the demons that have been active on the earth throughout history, human history, that fell with Satan. All are going to be confined in future Babylon. It's going to be a stronghold of demons. I like the way John MacArthur summarizes it. God will, so to speak, gather all the rotten eggs into one basket before disposing of them. It demands God judge it. Stronghold of demons. And that notion of a prison there, look at that in the verse, it adds the implication that they're being held in the stronghold involuntarily. Uh, The term prison refers to a place where these unclean spirits are, are being kept, contained, Verse 2 says, Babylon will also be a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. This is just another way to talk about demons. The birds is a further way to refer to demons, but now it's picturing them as if they're monstrous vultures, uh, evil spirits that are just hovering over the city, not allowed to leave by God's providence, like uh, uh, birds that eat decayed animals, carrion birds, kind of waiting for their prey. These are demons. So this is one reason God's going to go down and act in judgment and bring this former thriving metropolis and system to a state of ruin ruin, because it's a habitation of demons, stronghold demons. Here's another reason for Babylon's destruction, verse 3. It's not only going to be a stronghold of demons, it's going to be a stronghold of decadence. Decadence, verse 3. For all the nations have drunk drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Now this is something we're going to explain, but it's something true of all the nations, it says, of the world. This is worldwide. That's how vast the Babylon system is going to be, even though Antichrist has a headquarters. There's prostitution with the kings of the earth, and living luxuriously uh, in luxurious uh, immorality with the merchants of the earth, it says. All the language of this verse now is talking about something commercial, something materialistic. There's going to be a a drunkenness uh, over the world, a drunkenness over materialism, a materialistic stupor. It's an intoxication with, with money and things and wealth and luxury. And here's a little more about the three groups involved in this material drunkenness at that time. It talks about the nations, the kings of the earth, and the merchants of the earth. These three groups are encompassing the entire gamut of the world's population, a mass of mankind. Babylon, this commercial system under Antichrist's leadership, is going to seduce the entire world, even in the midst of all the judgments. Everyone's going to unite in this 
ungodly union with Babylon, lusting after the wealth of Babylon that Babylon promises. People and nations and kings will have thrown off by this time every semblance of self-control, every semblance of self-restraint. And sinners are going to indulge in an orgy, but here in this verse it's talking about a materialistic orgy worldwide. And the merchants are going to become rich with the whole world cashing in on, on Babylon's financial prosperity, in love with it. And by the way, there was a small taste of this in ancient Babylon in Daniel 5. You'll remember that they were partying you know, the night their city was destroyed. And that's going to happen then on a worldwide basis. He uses the word sensuality there at the end of verse 3. That word uh, is, the, is conveying the idea of brazen luxury. That's what the meaning of the word is. Uh, shameless self-indulgence. And what accompanies this self-indulgence is this pride, this arrogance of self-sufficiency. And Babylon is going to take pride in her excessive wealth and prosperity. That's what people are going to put their faith in. Supposedly inexhaustible resources causing worldwide people and kings and merchants to think that they don't need God at all. This is the picture of mankind lusting after material wealth, controlled by it, drunk on it. Therefore, God is going to act in judgment to bring destruction to the city and to the entire system. Why? Because in the future, this is going to be a stronghold of demons and it's going to be a stronghold of materialistic decadence. Now, all of that's explained by the first speaker. Here's speaker number two, verses four to 20. We won't get through all of that, but speaker number two, it's a voice from heaven. And what this voice says, this speaker, is really, a, a, we're going to look at a twofold call given out. And that's what we'll try to look at tonight, verses four to eight. Later on, next time, we'll see that this voice is going to give a prediction of laments, that there's going to be lamenting by the kings and the merchants and the sailors and people across the world because of God's destruction. And then finally, we're going to see at the very end a, a note of heavenly rejoicing, but that's all next time. So here, let's look at this twofold call coming from this voice from heaven. Here's the first part of this twofold call. This call by this voice includes a call to separation. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, her, Babylon, the city and the system. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. You see that expression another again. That means another of the same kind. The speaker is an angel again. Like the one in verse 1, it's just that here it's just called a, a voice, another voice. And this voice is from heaven. So this angel is speaking on behalf of God, in the name of God. And here's what the voice declares first. Come out. This is speaking to God's people, my people, true believers. And it's an urgent call here. The, the form of the verb is such that there's urgency being expressed. You must come out now. And it's addressed to true believers. There are going to be true believers there. 
who will have remained faithful to the Lord to the very end. And they're addressed here because they will face the dangerous temptation of getting caught up in this world system and lusting after the money and the prosperity the Antichrist is going to bring about. A fondness, a love for Babylon. God says, don't be deceived by that. Through this angel, going to be telling God's people, come out. An urgent call for God's people to leave the literal city of Babylon but also to shun all the enticements that's represented by this satanic system. It's a call to say no to the idolatry of materialism. It's a call to say no to the enticements of of thinking you're self-sufficient. It's a call to to say no to relying on luxury and money. You could summarize it and say this is a call to God's people to get totally disentangled from that system, that world system, and it's urgent. By the way, just inherently, this is an evangelistic call as well. Any of God's elect who remain, it's a call to them as well to come to faith, come out of the system that way, come to faith in Christ. And what an amazing thing to contemplate, and it's something we've already seen in Revelation, that throughout the terrifying judgments of the tribulation, God is going to be saving his elect people that are there during the tribulation. They're going to be saved by that gospel preaching of the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, by the two witnesses, and by the angel flying in mid-heaven, and, 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 and God's saved elect sharing the gospel. In fact, the gospel preaching from these proclaimers are going to yield during the tribulation. We saw it in chapter 7, the greatest harvest of souls the world has ever known. Let me read that again for you, Revelation 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So even during the last part of the tribulation, chapter 18 here, where, where this last bold judgment is being poured out on the earth, and, and the Babylonian system, including Antichrist headquarters, are being destroyed because of their, the habitation of demons that are there and because of the decadence that Antichrist has spread, this, this sense of prosperity and love of wealth and materialism. Even still, God has his people and his elect coming to faith. So the voice says, yeah, get out of this. And we already know what's going to happen to many of the believers who come to Christ during the tribulation period, regardless of where we are, what phase of judgment. Revelation 13 told us that, that many are going to be martyred because they're going to refuse that beast, a mark of the beast. Revelation 13, 15, and 16 It was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or their forehead. If if you're going to be able to buy goods, if you're going to be able to exist, you've got to take this mark, Scripture is saying, in that future time. But God's people are not going to do that. They're going to stay faithful. The true believers are. And they're going to be, many of them, killed and martyred. Some won't, but many will. And those who 
refuse the mark and survive are going to face powerful temptations all along the way to participate. Why? I mean, you can imagine this. Friends and family members are going to be pleading with them, take the mark, take the mark, live. And Revelation 13, 17 says to even get the, to buy the necessities of life, they'll have to have the mark. No one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark. Revelation 13, 17. So all this pressure, family, friends, the necessities that they need is going to continue even all the way up to the end during the seventh bowl judgment. So these believers must heed this call to come out of that system, separate it from it. And of course, that's always been the message given to God's people. But this biblical truth that believers are not to be involved in the world system is going to take on a new urgency at this time in the future. Because Babylon at this moment is going to be facing imminent and sudden and total destruction from God. Again, that was prophesied years ago, Jeremiah 51, verse 6. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Don't be destroyed in her punishment. This is the Lord's time of vengeance, Jeremiah 51, verse 6. Verse 45 of Jeremiah 51. Come forth from her midst, my people. If you think about it, we can't help but notice that this future angel's message, what's going to happen in the future here, this message to come out to the believer still in Babylon, it's, it's so similar to, it reminds you of the angels who brought a message to Lot. Remember when Lot was living in Sodom? What a picture, a small little picture of what's going to happen in Babylon in the future. I'll read that. Genesis 19, verse 12, the two angels said to Lot, whomever you have in the city, bring them out. Get them out of here. For we're about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. That's a small little picture of this voice telling all believers at this time in the future to get out. Can't help but think of that scene with Lot's wife. She didn't want to get out. There was this fondness in her heart for for the world. God had to judge her. So in summary, the message here is clear. To God's people at that time, get out before you're enticed, before the pressure becomes so great that you're going to be tempted to participate in all this sin. The materialistic pleasure-mad, demon-infested city of Babylon and the system is going to exert such a strong influence on believers to participate that they have to be ready to flee, like Joseph in Genesis 39, to flee. And by fleeing Babylon, God's people will not get caught up in the judgment. And here the judgment is called the plagues. All the bold judgments, by the way, have been called the plagues. You see that in verse 15, chapter 15, chapter 16. They're they're also called plagues. But here, these are plagues specific to the seventh bold judgment, the judgment on Babylon. Now, the call to separation by this voice continues in verse 5. Interesting language here. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven. This is really interesting. Piled up is from a term that means literally to glue together. It's the picture of the, of the sins all amassing together, growing together, connecting together in a mass, steadily 
clinging to one another and accumulating and building up until they finally reach to heaven. That's an allusion back to Babel, the original Babylon and the bricks building the Tower of Babel, attempting to build it up to heaven. Here it's saying, yeah, like that, the sins that are being committed are are like bricks that are sticking together, gluing together, and they're amassing and building up as high as the heavens, meaning God sees it, and he's going to go down again. Reminds us of what God said about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah too in Genesis 18. It says that their sins were so grave and great that the outcry, the outcry has come up to me. It's that kind of picture. It's just come up to heaven. So the angel adds in our verse this, verse 5, and God has remembered it, her iniquities. That's what's going to happen. He can't ignore it. Not all the crimes of Babylon. He's going to take note of them. Just like he did back in Babel. That earlier monument to humanistic thinking and man's rebellion and sinful, arrogant, prideful rebellion. God must do the right thing by remembering, by punishing the iniquities. Makes us so grateful for forgiveness, to know forgiveness. We don't deserve anything less than judgment. But we know the blessed truth of forgiveness, that God forgives iniquity, but not these people. For defiant, unrepentant future Babylon, there will be no forgiveness. It's too late, only judgment, sudden judgment. And that's why it will behoove God's people at that time to distance themselves the best they can from that city as far as they can. So it's a call for separation, to separation. And there's a second aspect of the call here in verse 6 a call for retaliation. Now the angel now speaks to John, not to John, but to God now. And now it's a call for retaliation, a call for for retribution, a call for vengeance on Babylon, verse 6. So again, that's not what we saw in verse, you know, 4 and 5, speaking to God's people and to John, but now to God, verse 6, pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. That command, give back, and she has given back, it comes from a verb that means to give back, but giving back in the form of of retribution. So this makes the angel's future plea reminiscent of of all the Old Testament saints' pleas all along the way for vengeance on ancient Babylon. Jeremiah 50, Psalm 28, the saints were pleading to God all along the way, do something about Babylon, this system, the world. Psalm 28, verse 4, requite them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Jeremiah 50, verse 15, take vengeance on her. Verse 29, repay her according to her work, according to all she's done. It's a parallel to that. It's a parallel to what the saints were crying out in Revelation 6. The martyred saints were crying out in Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10, that when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, it says that underneath the altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of their testimony for Christ, it says we're crying out, going, how long? How long, O Lord? 
Will you refrain? I mean, it's, they deserve it. And God is patient and the message goes out and they refuse to repent. And now it's come to the final part of the judgment. And it's going to be sudden and severe. It's a throwback to all those kind of things. But mostly, this is an echo of something in the Old Testament called the law of retaliation, or as it's been known throughout history, lex talionis. You ever heard that phrase, lex talionis? Lex talionis is the law of retaliation. It's a principle that's found in the Old Testament, better known by the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's lex talionis, the law of retaliation. Listen to some examples of that. Leviticus 24, 19, and 20. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it should be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. That's lex talionis, the law of retaliation. You see it again in Deuteronomy 19, 21. You shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, foot for foot. Now, just so you'll know, there have been people throughout history who have abused this, thinking this was a law, a privilege given to individuals. You know, whatever your neighbor did to you, you can do it back to them. Lex talionis was not a principle for individuals to carry out. It was a corporate responsibility in the nation of Israel. In a sense, it was a governmental responsibility. God alone has the right to retaliation. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, but he would carry it out through his designated leaders in Israel. And so that they live by that, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a fracture for a fracture. They meted out the, the retaliation for what's done. And so this is, a, this is an echo now in Revelation, future Babylon, God is the one who's going to implement lex talionis, the law of retaliation against future Babylon at the end of the Great Tribulation. By this time, Babylon's been extended enough grace. They've heard enough warnings. It's time for vengeance, time for destruction. But the phrase double according to her deeds is interesting. Literally in the Greek, it's give her double the double things. Double has been her iniquity, so double must be her punishment. Babylon's sins have overflowed, so destruction ought to overflow. But just so you'll know, more specifically, the term double means fullness or completeness. It does not mean literally whatever she's done, double that. Double in this verse has the sense of equivalency. Kind of like when we say that... Someone is somebody else's double. What do we mean when we say that? <clears throat> that, you know, uh, Kevin Mulholland is my double. I mean, honestly, look at us. Well, we mean that they look the same when we say something like that. That's what this means. Okay, there's a double here. Double it, meaning Lex talionis, it's an eye for an eye and a foot for a foot. What she has done, pay her back appropriately, God. Give her the punishment that will fit the crime. That's what the call is to here. So in summary, it's not a prayer for personal vengeance, you know, by the persecuted saints. No, it's for God to meet this out 
Now, a natural question to ask is, who's going to, who are God's executioners? Scripture doesn't tell us here specifically, but we, it's interesting what we did read back in chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, that at that time, God is going to move even on Antichrist, the beast and so forth, and going to move on them and they're going to implode and somehow he's going to stir up even his enemies to bring about destruction. He's done that before in history. It's a mystery to us, but God can do that. There's a little bit of a confirmation to this conclusion that somehow the, the ones he's going to use is still this imploding nature of the system and Antichrist himself and them destroying one another, stirring them up to do that, as Revelation 17 said. There's a confirmation for that in one sense in that in chapter 17, it uses the phrase that the city will be burned, and we're going to see it again in chapter 18 two or three times. So God has the right to the vengeance. He's going to put it in the heart of these enemies, the beast and his accomplices, to move suddenly and unexpectedly to start destroying things and implode. And then the angel calls, verse 7, on God again to exact complete vengeance, equal vengeance on Babylon, and gives some more insights into why. Verse 7, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning, same degree. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I'm not a widow, and will never see mourning. The angel's saying she's proud, she, she glorifies herself, she's pursuing self-gratification, living sensuously. Again, it's that word that means a, a luxurious lifestyle. And she's guilty of, of a haughty self-confidence. There's this overestimation of her own power that she thinks she's beyond punishment. She says in her heart, I said as a queen, you can't touch me. I'm not a widow. I'll never suffer like a widow. I'll not mourn. Proud boast. Self-deification. There's no other God but me. That is the basic humanistic attitude. It's the basic attitude of future Babylon. This is the extreme of wickedness, to, to think like that, that God cannot touch me, that basically there is no God I'm accountable for. Psalm 10 says, that's what the wicked say, there is no God. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's what Babylon's going to say. And they're going to receive torment and mourning. Torment's a word that means torture the torture of punishment that will go on throughout eternity even. And the mourning refers to the grief that the torture produces. So here the world will think they're going to be able to live in a life of ease and luxury, and that's going to be replaced with the gloom of grief and torment. And it's to the degree that the sin's been committed. There's the lex talionis again. Well, that brazen attitude just adds to the intensity and the speed of the judgment. Verse 8, so we did get to it tonight. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come. Pestilence and mourning and famine. For this reason, here's cause and effect being pictured. Babylon's blatant boasting and the presumptuousness that I can't be touched is going to be the cause of her sudden ruin 
in one day, suddenness. So not progressive here, not decay over time like the city of Babylon has known throughout world history from time to time and different cities take its place. Like I said, until recent times. In the future, this Babylon will be instantly destroyed. Plagues, pestilence, and mourning, and famine. And if that's not enough, it says that Babylon would be burned up with fire. And they will not be able to stop it. Verse 8 says, for the Lord God who does this, who judges her, is strong. The strength of the city, what they think they have is no match for the strength of God. His overruling control even has created this alliance where they turn on one another and they fight on one another ended up destroying one another. By the way, you see that in, uh, remember the prayer of Jehoshaphat with, they went out and marched against the enemy and when they got there, they found that, that the three sections of the nations that were coming against Judea had all turned on one another and had killed one another. And when God's army got there, the enemy was all dead because they killed one another. It's happened before. God's going to somehow do that again. He has the strength to do it. And no one can stop it. No one can frustrate it, his plan. No purpose of hers, his can be thwarted. Isaiah 14, 27 says, the Lord of hosts has planned. Who can frustrate it? Nobody. Daniel 4, 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. Isaiah 43, verse 13, from even from eternity, eternity, I am he. There is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Nobody. That's future Babylon. The final aspect of the final bull judgment. And God has final victory. And that prepares the way for chapter 19 and the coming of Christ now. So we can't look to, wait to look at that. Just some observations to close with. Here's one observation, something that hasn't changed. The world has never changed and never will. We live in a world today characterized by Babylon. Babylonian thinking, humanistic thinking. I mean, all that has characterized Babel and then Babylon in the past still characterize the world today. And what will represent, what will characterize Babylon in the future, a measure of that is it will be severe then, the worst form of it, but a measure of that is present today. All across the world and throughout history, people believe that somehow they can get control of their own destiny, they can do what they want, and that mankind can actually become better. We can become more prosperous. You know, if you have the right scientific discoveries and the right education and with enlightenment, we can get control of our destiny and we can make this place a better place. And therefore, they see no use for God. They replace Him. They seek to be their own God and replace His sovereignty with their own sovereignty. That's the world we live in. So think about that when it comes to ministry my ministry, your ministry in this fallen world, this Babylon we live in. This is what we face. No wonder Paul said things like this. To Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers. And he goes on and on with that list, without self-control, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Telling Timothy, this is what you're dealing with, Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine. They just want to have their ears tickled. 
So we live in a world, that's the mindset of Babylon, a world known for promotion of self, desire for autonomy, all-out attempts to defy God's sovereign rule. In preaching and counseling and parenting and gospel witness, we are combating then going up against a false worldview that's entrenched. And that is why we stick to proclaiming biblical truth. You can't manipulate people out of their love for Babylon. They love it too much. But truth is powerful for the destruction of fortresses, 2 Corinthians 10 says. Hebrews 4.12, only the word of God is living and active. That's why we preach scripture. And we preach it and we proclaim it out there in this world, this dark world, biblical truth, and we catch some. It's a net that we throw out and we catch the Lord's elect sheep. As John 10 says, when Christ said, the sheep hear my voice, that's still true. I know them and they follow me, still true. Always has been, always will be, even in the, during the judgments of the future. Even when they're caught in the snares of Babylon, think about that. Even if they're caught in the world system, if they're God's elect, they will respond to the Spirit's unique and powerful work of using biblical truth to open hearts and release them from this worldview that enslaves them. So the world hasn't changed. It finds new ways to express its worldview. That's really it. That's one observation. Here's another observation. God hasn't changed either. God has always hated Babylonian thinking, you know. He's always hated Babylon's pride. He still hates pride. He's always hated Babylon's attempt to steal his glory. He still hates that. He says, I'm the Lord, that's my name, I will not give my glory to another. God's always been sovereign, and he still is. My purpose will be established, Isaiah 46.10 says, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God hasn't changed. And therefore, it's still true that the world is powerless against him. Throughout world history, he is the one who's allowed the history of nations to progress Even nations who've sought to go their own way and ignored him, rebelled against him, God's still been in in control of that. Remember Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, at Mars Hill, Acts 14? Uh, Actually, that was not the sermon there. I think it's Acts 14 where he says, it could be Acts 17, but he makes a statement, in generations gone by, he has permitted, God has permitted all the nations to go their own ways. He's done that. And that's why Psalm 2 says that he, he looks on the nations and, he, and, he, and he, he looks at what they plan and he just laughs, Psalm 2 says. Psalm 40, uh, Isaiah 40 says he, he looks at the nations, and this is God's own commentary. He says, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're nothing, nothing at all. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. So the world hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. The, therefore, the power of the world is meaningless. Here's another observation. Quickly, the need for separation from the world hasn't changed. 
what that call is to people then is the call that we hear over and over and over in Scripture. Even today, believers must not get entangled and caught up in the world system, whatever form of it exists today. Romans 12, be not conformed to the world. 2 Corinthians 6, don't be bound together with unbelievers. There's no partnership of righteousness and lawlessness. James 1, keep yourself unstained by the world. James 4, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2, don't love the world. That has not changed. And it's not going to change. It's going to be a call, the call by that voice in the future. Another observation, the right attitude toward enemies hasn't changed. We don't get retaliation, okay? That's not our job. Don't live by an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, you know, unless you're talking about the responsibility that God has to carry that out through his chosen agents, in our case, the government. We as individuals don't seek revenge. We're told that as a follower of Jesus, individually, our attitude toward enemies is one of kindness, a disposition of kindness toward them. Romans 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. 1 Thessalonians 5, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. 1 Peter 3, be kind-hearted and humble, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. That's what individual followers of Jesus do. God has the right to take vengeance. So Romans 12, 19 says, never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And he has the ability to judge motives and actions so he can implement lex talionis. We don't live by that, not as individuals. Lastly, just think about this, salvation hasn't changed. You know, salvation has always been pictured this way. It's someone being rescued and plucked out of one kingdom, one worldview, and placed in another worldview. In Psalm 1, it's you're, you're planted by streams of living water, but the word is really transplanted. You're plucked out of the world, the field of the world, and transplanted into God's field. One kingdom to another. That's always been true of salvation. And so those elect who, who hear the call in future Babylon and disentangle themselves, but they're responding to the call to come to Christ, and that's what the elect do. But here's, here's a summary verse, Colossians 1.13. Here's salvation. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. If you're a follower of Christ tonight, it's because you've been rescued out of Babylon. Some form of Babylon that exists today, the Babylonian system, the worldview, you've been rescued from that, and your eyes have been opened, and your heart's been opened, and now you know the truth, and you love Christ. That's someone who's been saved. Let's pray. Father, we read about all this, and it's a lot of technical stuff and incredible language about the future, but we get the overall flow of it, Lord that there's coming a day when your right to vengeance will be exercised 
It'll be too late for the earth dwellers. Your elect will come to you still. That'll never stop. But the day is coming for your vengeance to be exercised. And it'll be severe. So Lord, thank you that you're a forgiving, gracious God and you do rescue people out of Babylon, out of Sodom, out of Gomorrah. You rescue people, rescue sinners like us. So thank you for that. May all of this just make us more in awe of then of the coming of Christ at the end of all this in power and glory. Even so come, Lord Jesus, as Scripture says, in Christ's name, amen.